Father, we're so grateful for this time together. As we gather this morning, the Lord's Day, we're reminded of your goodness, your grace, your mercy, particularly as we celebrate Messiah, his death, his burial, his resurrection, and also the fact that we would reaffirm this as we celebrate the Lord's table. Be with each one, and Lord, may you be exalted. Bless your people, Lord. Your people go through so much, O oh God. Some are going through grief and pain. Others, O oh God, loss, and many others, O oh God, sickness and need. But we pray, Lord, that you supply every need according to your riches and glory, that your name would be upon them today, precious people that are here and those that are watching. And Lord, we just pray that you would be exalted in our midst, for we ask this up our Father, through Jesus Christ our Lord, God's people said, Amen, amen and Amen. <clears throat> Give the Lord a clap offering. It's so good to be in the house of the Lord this Lord's Day. And thank you, precious ones, that have come here in-house and to be able to come in and corporately worship the Lord and be part of this service. And those of you who are watching online, we're so grateful. We welcome you to this uh, 10.30 morning service. And we're so glad and excited that you could be part of the service and worship as well as the Word. And in whatever way we could be able to pray and bless you, let us know. You can get into our website. All the information are there. And just as you're watching, would you, if you could share this, or if you're uh, on YouTube, tell others about this so they could be part of this beautiful worship experience with us. Once again, we're going back to where we started and then continuing on with uh, Zechariah chapter 9, verse 12. But this morning, I want to take a few verses from that book of Zechariah chapter 9 and reading from verse 9 all the way to verse 12. Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9, 10, 11, and 12. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, the king, thy king cometh unto thee. He is just and having salvation, lowly and riding upon a donkey and upon the colt of the fowl of a donkey. And I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the horse from Jerusalem, and the battle bow shall be cut off, and he shall speak peace unto the heathen, and his dominion shall be from sea even to sea, from the river even to the ends of the earth. As for thee also, by the blood of thy covenant, I have sent forth thy prisoners out of the pit wherewith there is no water. Turn you to the stronghold, you prisoners of hope. For today, today I declare that I will render double unto thee. Turn you to the stronghold, you prisoners of hope. That stronghold, Zechariah is talking to the people of his day, is that precious hope that we would be talking about. Let me just remind you this word prison and prisoners, so much can be said about prisoners and prison, particularly when we read great novels like The Prisoner from, uh, the prisoner from Zenda, as well as when you think about the Count of Monte Cristo and the famous prison in that novel called the famous prison that is called Chateau de uh, 
if, and it's a, it's a powerful testimony of a person who was wrongly imprisoned, goes out for vengeance, and ultimately realizes it's not vengeance that he seeks for, but love and grace. But when you think about notable prisoners across the world, you're reminded of particularly Robben Island in Cape Town, South Africa, where Nelson Mandela was incarcerated from 1964 all the way to 1982. Or think of uh, in Birmingham prison, in Birmingham, Alabama, uh, Martin Luther King Jr., who was incarcerated and he wrote his letters from that prison. Or for that fact, Joe Larnoru, and many others who were incarcerated in writing his letter to Priyadakshini Indra Gandhi, his daughter. So many things have come out of prison, including John Bunyan and uh, his uh, great novel coming in from the prison times. Uh, all of this reminds us of uh, prisoners of conscience, prisoners who are standing up for religious freedom across the world, even today, who are imprisoned. But when you think about prisons, also remember there have been those, those, those are, that are not, uh, notorious prison, prisons and prisoners. Alcatraz, if you remember, is a prison for people like uh, Al Capone or Mission Gun Kelly or even the great birdman Robert Shroud. These all have been in this impregnable prison, which is today now uh, literally a historical place and uh, a museum. One of the things you find when you think about prison, there has been many that have been uh, literally put, locked behind and forgotten. When you think about the horrible uh, Bolshevik uh, sweep of the um, Soviet, especially Christians, and put into prison all the way in Gulag, in Siberia, they were put there in thousands and thousands and millions to die. And then again, during the time of Nazi, uh, many, many thousands and millions of Jews were put up in Auschwitz. And there also is a, is a sad, pathetic story of prison and prisoners. When you think of all of these prisons, you're reminded of the greatest prison, which is today a museum, which is uh, the Tower of London that held prisoners like Anne Boleyn, the th second wife of King Henry, or even a great uh, scholar, statesman like Sir Walter Raleigh. These are all reminding us of some prison, some notorious, some famous, some that deemed uh, not necessary to be in prison, and others who were prisoners very well. But again, when we are reminded of this passage, which Zechariah is talking about, he's talking to a people that have come out of Babylon, and they have been there languishing in Babylon for 70 years, according to the words of Jeremiah and chapter 25 and 29. And what you find about this man is that he has been sent to encourage and to be able to tell the people to fulfill their destiny. They have come with great hope and aspiration, and now they are stuck, they are stranded because of, uh, of King Darius, who who was besought by the Samaritans to stop the work, and that's what happened. So in this letter, you find that it is to people of his time that he's speaking to. I want us to realize when we think about prison and prisoners, we're reminded of what 
Zechariah writes, and this is the theme today, especially as we partake in communion, prisoners of hope. And this rings a bell because we are people of hope and he's giving them a gem thought that ultimately will come to fruitation hundreds of years later in which they look forward to and today we look back in faith just as they look forward to in faith. But let me give you three very important statements that you find in Zechariah chapter 9 and verse 9. Number one, when you read this passage, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion, in verse 9, O daughter of Zion, behold, thy king cometh unto you. What we are reminded is these are the words, exact words, spoken by the Lord Jesus Christ, quoted by Matthew, Luke, and also John writes about it. And these quotations come from the pen of this man written by the Spirit of God and ultimately finds its fulfillment when Jesus comes on that Palm Sunday morning riding into Jerusalem, offering salvation, unlike what they had expected for a military might or a political empire that would save them from the cudgels of Rome. First and foremost, God brought the Messiah to them to be a savior, a salvation to them, and then he would perform what he had promised much later. So when they were expecting someone of a military might or someone that would come in power to throw the cudgels of whether it is Babylon or Rome, they were not looking forward to someone that would come on a donkey, someone that is lowly, someone that comes to do justice and to bring peace and harmony between nations and between people. That was unexpected for them. And the Bible says in John chapter 1 and verse 11 that he came unto his own and his own received him not. But in verse 12, as many as received him, to them gave he power to become sons or daughters of God. Three principles I want to give from chapter 9 and verse 11 is number one, it says here in verse 11, As for thee by the blood of thy covenant, I have sent forth thy prisoners, out of the pit wherein there is no water. First thing I want to remind us of the state of affair or the situation that we are caught up in at this moment from the Garden of Eden all the way to today, talking about what would be a bottomless or what would be waterless pit. This is the state in which we are, we find ourselves in when you think about a pit or what would be a ground, a hole in the ground that would necessarily would have brought water has no water. I want us to rem remember that uh, the earth was blessed with abundance of trees and fruits and all of the things that you could have found in the Garden of Eden and yet you find the state of affair and you realize that God had made man vice regent under him and in chapter 1 of Genesis 1.28, multiply and be fruitful and have dominion. And instead of having dominion, they were, uh, they were basically under dominion of Satan. And this is the serpent, the great Satan. When you think about what takes place, you find that it is sadly a waterless pit. That was because of the curse uh, as a result of the fall. 
and you find the earth was cursed, the animals were cursed, and everything that the earth and the world contains is cursed because man who should have been king fell, and with man fell all of the things that he was in charge of. And at this moment, Satan is the god of this world. So this reminds us the state of affairs or what would be the situation that not only we face but for the millionaire years that have gone by that people have faced and it is called, it is a waterless pit. And in other words, that begins the fall of man, that's the state of our nature. The moment man fell, that was the way that Satan tricked us, we became his slaves. And when you look at the situation, you find that uh, this curse has extended to everything man had been in control. The pollution is not the act of God, but it is as a result and the act of man. So when you look to what the Bible talks about, it is a fallen nature. Man becomes basically the breath of God, which is uh, high, and yet below the flesh that is fallen, that is so low and so man has two nature the high and the low and he's a fallen creature it is as a result of the fruit of the knowledge of good and yet evil that perfection that pristine glory fell the moment man sinned against god and he was made an exile out of the garden of israel of uh, of the garden of eden what I want us to realize is there are several times uh, the children of Israel have been uh, dominated by foreign forces, uh, particularly you look at the, after the time of uh, Joshua, and this is a book called the book of Judges. Fifteen judges were raised because every time they backslid, every time they rebelled against God. Deuteronomy chapter 27 and 28 came into effect blessing if you will obey curses if you will disobey you would be the head if you obey you would be the tail if you disobey so once who should people who should have conquered were conquered people so god raised something like 15 judges uh, beginning with Othaniel, nephew of Caleb and then you have the names of people that you will find like Samson and Gideon and so forth but only three times have you, do you find the word exile. Exile simply means not simply dominated by a foreign force, but exile means moving out of their own country. And the three times you find, let's begin with number three, is this passage from Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9 to 11 that Zechariah is speaking about, were people that have been exiled because of the sin and as a result they have been taken out of their own land this is the southern uh, nation the southern part of israel uh, which is uh, judea um, babylon uh, the assyrians are already taken israel the northern tribe but this is a southern that is basically kept lost to some regard and yet they in their disobedience were taken by Nebuchadnezzar in the year 587 BC and now they are taken to Babylon and they have to be there for 70 years. The second exile you find in the Bible is in the book of Exodus. You remember that uh, 
Joseph had gone to Egypt and God raised him up and because of the famine, his brethren came and joined him. And of course, the Egyptian owed a whole lot to Joseph who saved them from the famine. But ultimately, a new king, a new pharaoh came in and he was alarmed by the rate of growth among the Hebrew nation and he didn't remember the kindness that Joseph did. And instead of rewarding the people, uh, the Hebrew people, he put them in prison, he put them into hard labor, and that was a life of hard, difficult uh, dominion that the people had in exile uh, in Egypt under the Pharaoh and for 430 years until the fulfillment according to what God promised, the time uh, of the Amorites are ripe and full. So you have the second exile. The first exile that you find in the Bible comes all the way in the book of Genesis when in that pristine garden called the Garden of Eden because of sin and because of the nature and the power of the deception of that serpent called Satan, man and the woman was deceived and they were exiled out of that pure uh, garden of bliss and joy, the Garden of Eden. So in these three exiles, we find a very powerful uh, statement and story. I wanted to realize the third exile finds a savior or someone that God used a pagan emperor by the name of uh, Cyrus, king of Persia, who gives the edict for the people of Israel to return back to Judah empowering them to rebuild not only the temple that was broken down by Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon, but also to build the outer uh, walls and so forth. So you have people like, Ezra, uh, you have people like uh, Zechariah and Haggai, Ezra and Nehemiah, all part of this great event in the third exile. The second exile finds his deliverer in a young man that was taken into Nile to, be, uh, to escape the wrath of Pharaoh. And what you find is this young lad being adopted by Pharaoh's sister becomes part of the great civilization of Egypt. And out of this man called Moses, taken out of a basket in the river Nile, God brings a deliverer and he delivers the people of Israel, the Hebrew people with this word, God said, set my people free to Pharaoh and sets the people free. So we talked about the third exile, we talked about the second exile, but what about the third exile, uh, the first exile? This is where we want to turn our attention to because what Zechariah is doing is giving you a picture looking through the corridors of time to the one that would be the true emancipator who would set us free, man, would be in a cosmic setting from the beginning of that time in the Garden of Eden, has been out of exile and literally lost the glory of the covering and in its place we have been uh, slaves to Satan and we're talking about at this time literally waiting for redemption. And so the glimpses of the Messiah, the Deliverer, 
beginning in the book of Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15, the seed of a woman, going all the way to the end of the book of Malachi, looking forward to, after 400 years after Malachi, the silent years, comes the angelic voice to the one that is announced, not only to Zechariah the high priest, but also to Elizabeth his wife, and then particularly Gabriel coming to uh, such a person as Mary the blessed and giving her the message that she would be the mother of the Messiah that would be born of a woman, seed of a woman. Let me remind you, the first exile basically finds his deliverer in someone that we come to know as the word became flesh, the pure incarnate word becoming flesh, and he took upon himself our form, and as a man, he humbled himself. Philippians chapter 2, verses 5, and all the way to 9 tells us, and God had raised him above every other name. Now, that being said, I want you to know the first principle that we need to learn is from that time, we find the earth, or what would be our being, would be like what Zechariah chapter 9 and verse 11 says, it is a pit which is in a waterless pit. And that has been the state and the nature. Man that is born of a woman is born to sin. That is what Psalmist says in Psalm chapter 51 and verse 5. That is the state of thing because within us, not only the breath of God that is heavenly, but then there is the flesh that has fallen nature. And that is until the deliverer comes who will emancipate us. And his first coming emancipates us primarily in the spirit to save us. And there are other things he does uh, in terms of the soul and, uh, and the body and the, and the other aspect of our life. But the full emancipation comes when he will come again the second time. Now, all this has so much to do with what we're about to do today in the communion because we see the picture of the Messiah, the Christo, Yeshua Messiah, Jesus the Christ, who comes to us and we need to realize in his death, his burial, and his resurrection. Now, when you think about this um, being a captive in a waterless pit, we're reminded of what... Uh, King Zedekiah did giving heed to the princes and the false prophets during the time of Jeremiah and he was put into a prison when you turn to Jeremiah chapter 38 and verse 6 you find he was put into a miry pit or a pit that was waterless and the waterless pit suddenly evaporated and all you find is the mire and that is the strange uh, situation of mankind today put into a miry pit and we become slaves of Satan. Once we should have had dominion, once we were made to be the vice regent under God, sin has stripped us and Satan has deceived us. The pipe piper brought us to such lowdown. But I want you to understand, from the very moment man fell, Operation Rescue came into being, and you can find in Genesis chapter 3.15 all the way to every book and every pages of the Old Testament talks about the one that would come, and thanks be to the one that comes, Shiloh, not only the Redeemer, but also the Prince of Peace and King that shall come. 
What I want us to understand is when you go through this passage, the second lesson that we can take note is that the Savior, the Messiah, the Deliverer has come to get us out of that prison. So if you were to look again in chapter 9 of the book of Zechariah and verse 11, he says, I've sent forth thy prisoners out of the pit where there is no water. So here is the deliverer, according to the prophecies enunciated so many times in the Old Testament, comes to deliver us, comes to let us who are prisoners that in a prison that Satan has locked us, bring us out and we are prisoners of hope. What a tremendous passage it is. We find that in the Bible, uh, particularly when you read Romans chapter 5 and verse 12, through the disobedience of one, we all were subjugated. And yet in verse 19, through the obedience of one, we're all made righteous. So under one, we fall down, but on the other, through him, we rise up. And thanks be to God. What I want us to realize, Isaiah talks so much about what takes place. In Isaiah chapter 61, verses 1 to 3, here is the blessed manifesto, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he had anointed me to preach the gospel and goes on to say, to bind the brokenhearted, proclaim liberty, and set the captives free. And that is the uh, manifesto of the Messiah. And the moment the book was given to Yeshua, Messiah, our Lord, our Savior, you find in Luke chapter 4, verse 18 and verse 19 and 20, he got up to say, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he had anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor, but goes on to say, to proclaim liberty and recovering of sight and set at liberty those that are bruised or those that are chained. And that becomes the manifesto and the reason why he comes to seek and to save that which was lost. That becomes to us a very important aspect. So what he has called us is not prisoners of despair, not prisoners of fear, but specifically prisoners with a hope, even though we live in a sin-sick, Satan-governed world, God gives us hope of glorious future and what a wonderful aspect. So every time we partake of this communion table, as we partake of the bread and of the wine, we're constantly reminded the great deliverance that the Lord Jesus Christ has given us. Henry Newbegin, a great writer, a Catholic philosopher in the past, has written great books. And one of the books he's written is uh, based, uh, turning my morning into dancing. He talks about a soldier that was captured and taken away into a far for, uh, foreign land, estranged from his own home and from his own localized neighborhood he knew, he knew to an unfamiliar setting where he was put away and he would have lost his mind in despair and fear and with no hopes, nobody talking to him in the language or in a way that he could relate to hopeless his condition was until one day a long lost letter arrived into this place he opened and it was from his loved ones to say we love you and we're waiting for you to come back from that very moment a man that was caught up in death and despair suddenly changed into a living hope that 
totally changed his countenance, totally changed his entire appearance, totally changed his attitude, because even though he was in prison, he knew he would be set free and it would not be too long. And that changed the game. That was a great equalizer that made the greatest difference, hope in a time of hopelessness. Uh, faith in a time of fear. What a change. I want to remind you, my friend, this reminds us over and over again of what the Lord Jesus Christ has done for us. Principle number two I want you to understand is, again, you find in verse 11, as for thee also by the, the, also by the blood of that covenant. I want you to underline what Zechariah is saying, as for thee also by the blood of thy covenant. In just a moment, for those who are watching, we would be having communion. So if you could prepare uh, either the bread or the, or the grape juice, you would be part with us in this communion. The covenant of blood or the blood of thy covenant, what does that remind you? That Old Testament telling us of the many sacrifices of animals and particularly rams and going to the book of Genesis all the way to the last book of the Bible and the blood of the lamb that speaketh of God, one that would come and pay the price. And then John the Baptist comes in John chapter 1, verse 29. Behold the Lamb of God, which take away the sins of the world. He is the Lamb, the Paschal Lamb, the true Lamb, the personification of all that were in the Old Testament. The types, the shadow, and the symbols now come to a reality. The picture is now become the reality, the fulfillment. And we find in this, it was by the blood of the covenant. That is very powerful, particularly when you realize on that Passover day, when you read the book of Exodus chapter 12, each family were to take a lamb, and it was the blood that was on the doorpost and the lintel that would save them. When I see the blood, the judgment will pass over you. The blood is the reason why they were covered. And you find this was a beautiful picture of uh, that will find its ultimate fulfillment in the, in the death and burial and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ and the blood that would be shed on Calvary's cross and that would be applied on the mercy seat forever in heaven. We're saved by the blood, not of some animals and bull, as First uh, Peter chapter 1, 18 says, but by the precious precious blood of Jesus Christ. So then when we go to take the communion, let's remind ourselves it is with the cost of the precious blood of Jesus Christ. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. That's why Colossians chapter 1 verse 13 to 14 says, God has transferred us from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of his son to find that atonement and to find uh, that uh, that forgiveness in his blood. So when you think about what God has done, let me remind you the power of the blood in Luke chapter 22, verse 19 and verse 20. Jesus now celebrating the Passover, looking back of what Moses and others experienced, finds its fulfilled because the next morning he would be the Paschal Lamb. 
what he does is he, he gives this cup saying, this is my body which is given to you, this do in remembrance of me. And in verse uh, 20, listen to what he says. Likewise also the cup after the supper saying, this is the new testament of my blood which is shed for you. This is the new covenant. The old have been superseded by something greater and that can never be disannulled. This is the covenant, the new testament covenant of his blood. Aren't you glad that you and I are not saved by some substitute, but by the reality of one that came. And just as the people of Israel look forward by faith, we look back by faith the same way to one that gave his life. And this is the New Testament in my blood, which is shed for you. I want to remind you in the book of Leviticus chapter 17 and verse 11, it very plainly states that the life of a person is in his blood. And that is blood for blood. God gave the sacrifice for us. The word became flesh and dwelt among us and he took our place. And when you look at Hebrews chapter 9 and verse 22, without the shedding of blood, there is no remission. There's no forgiveness. But I want you to know there is forgiveness because the blood has been shed 2,000 years ago. And every time we partake of this communion, we're reminded, thanks be to God, it was not by some magic, it was not by just a wand being flung here, but by the precious blood of God's anointed Son, the Messiah, our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ. So let us always, as we partake of this, remember, but there's also such a blessing, hedge of protection and a blessing, the cup of blessing which we bless, is it not? I want to remind you something very important. The f we find our deliverance in a mighty way as Romans chapter 7 and verse 24 says, O wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from the body of death? And the very next verse, verse 25 says, I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. He saves us and redeems us. So in chapter 8, Romans, it says, There is now therefore no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus, which, not, which walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. But I want to remind you of something so amazing in verse 39 of chapter 8. It goes on to say, For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor death, nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus. Isn't that a great hope? So Zechariah says, Return to your hope. Return to what is so strong. And in chapter 8, particularly in verse 24, it says, We are saved by the hope, but hope which is seen is not hope. For what a man seed, why not he yet for? We're saved by hope, recognizing that this is so important that we keep this hope in our heart. So here in chapter 9 of Zechariah and verse 12, he says, turn you to the stronghold. This is our stronghold. You prisoners of hope, even today, I declare I will render double 
for all that you have gone through. We need to stand up and recognize for all that Christ has done for us. There is a double in terms of all that far greater than man could do, and not only here on earth, how much more in eternity with the Lord, that we are people of hope, people of reward, people that God has raised up, and it is all because of what he has done for us through Jesus Christ our Lord. So we come to celebrate. Eucharist or table is a time of celebration. We look back with thanksgiving to God, although it was painful for the Son of God, it was the most joyful bliss for us because when you think about the favor that God has granted to us who believe, it's so important. That's why the Bible says, believe and you shall be saved. Look upon me and you shall be saved. It is so important. It is so critical. What I want us to understand is this is the hope. I, my predecessor used to sing this song so often. I'm reminded of James Samuel Wright. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus Christ. What an amazing, all other things would be sinking sand. Our hope is built on the Lord Jesus Christ. That is very powerful. That is so tremendous. In fact, the way I look at it is what First Peter chapter 1 and verse 3 says, Blessed be the God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which according to his abundant mercy has begotten us unto a lively hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And this is a lively hope that we hold on to. Three things that will never, ever lose its power. Let me just tell you two words that come from the angelic uh, language. And no matter which country, no matter which language you may be, this is uh, across the world two very important words. One is hallelujah and the other is amen. That actually comes from the tongues of angels. But then there are three words translated no matter where you are, whether in the metropolitan city of New York or far reaches of the, across in some faraway country, three words are translated in all the vernacular, and those three will never lose its power. It's a word of eternity. And that's what 1 Corinthians chapter 13 towards the end says, there abided three, and that is love number one, number two faith, and number three is hope. These three abides for her. Now abided faith, open charity. These three, the greatest of this is charity. Do not forget, no matter whatever happens, let go of everything if you have to, but never give up hope, faith, and charity. Because everything you lost will come back once you have still in your hand. Love and hope and faith. Faith is so important. Faith is so powerful. Faith, and when you think about faith, he is the author of faith. And when you think about hope, he is the author and he is the God of all hope. In fact, I believe in Romans chapter 15 and verse 13, I believe it says, the God of all hope comfort you with the hope that he gives to every one of us. And this is very powerful. Now the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing that we may abound in hope, that we may abound in hope through the power of the Holy Ghost. 
I want to just remind you the foundation of our hope is in Jesus Christ, particularly when you think about this passage in the book of Isaiah, chapter 28 and verse 16. Listen to what it says uh, in this passage. It just says, Now therefore, thus saith the Lord God, Behold, I lay in Zion for a foundation a stone, a tried and tested stone, a precious cornerstone, a sure foundation, he that believeth shall make haste. And that's why Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, 11, this is a sure foundation. This is the foundation for no, for other foundation can no man lay than that which is laid, that is Jesus Christ our Lord. Our faith, our hope, and our love rest on the foundation of Jesus Christ. For God is love, for he is the God of faith and the author and finisher of faith and is the God of our hope. Thanks be to God for the victory in Jesus Christ. Let me just remind you, uh, before we take the communion, uh, four words that are very important, abbreviation of H-O-P-E, hope. When I talk about hope, let me remind you, it is a safe anchor. It is a solid anchor. Uh, if you were to turn with me to the book of Hebrews, chapter 6, and particularly verse, uh, verse 19, it's a very powerful scripture. It tells us in chapter 6 and verse 19, listen to what it says here, which hope we have as an anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast, and which enters that within the whale. It is hope that is an anchor to our soul. Never lose hope. You know, there's a story about a man who wanted to impress the world around him. He brought a great ship, and with the ship, he brought everything that was needed. And so, as he was about to, as he sailed, and he was far away from the beach, he told his wife, now lay down the anchor, and she laid down the anchor, and suddenly he realized the anchor was not tied to a rope, and all he could see was the anchor just fall. I pray that your anchor is tied to your life, that Jesus Christ becomes the anchor of your life, that you're intrinsically connected to the hope of your soul. That is so powerful. And the first word H I can think about is hold on. No matter what takes place, hold on. Don't give up. Like I said, there are things in this world that could be your possession, that could be your job, your house. Uh, it goes, it goes. But I want you to know, don't give up love and faith and hope because everything that has gone through the window will come back through the doors and windows because faith, hope, and love always is empowered and will empower you. Let me remind you of what it says in chapter 10 and verse 23 of the book of Hebrews. This is very powerful. Let us hold fast profession of our faith without wavering, for he is faithful just as he promised. Hold on to faith. Hold on to love. Hold on to hope. Don't let it go by. Hold on simply means grip as much as you can and don't let it go. The storms may be loud and storms may be heavy, but in the midst of everything, it's so important, not the gold or the diamonds, that, like that woman took it with her in Titanic, but just that will which keeps you through and through. Ultimately, when everything else is said and done, 
three things that are very important as Christians is love and faith and yes, hope. Don't give that up because everything you lost will be returned as long as you hold on to. And the Bible says, hold steadfastly on hope. These have been very trying times, especially during this pandemic. It has been very difficult, to say the least, for so many, and we should never discount the many hurts and the pain and the sufferings of so many people. But in the midst of it all, no matter what you've gone through, no matter what you've experienced, hold on to hope. This is very important. I know that things have slipped by. I know things have gone by, but hold on to hope. Hope simply means we are people of hope, not hopelessness, not despair, not fear. And when you think about what uh, a, a passage that can become so illuminating is, I find that in Second Samuel chapter 23 and verse 9 and 10 by the by the one of the three most trusted lieutenant of David. His name is Eliezer, the son of Dodo, the anchorite, one of the three mighty men. Of course, um, David had great men. What is about this man that he was one of the top three? Simply meant he was a man that held on to. It says here, when they defied the Philistines, they were there gathered together to battle, and the men of Israel, and the men of Israel all drifted. They were scared. They all ran. But think about this, uh, Eliezer, the son of Dodo, what did he do? In verse 10 tells you, he arose and smote the Philistines until his hand was weary, and his hand clave unto the sword, and the Lord wrought a great victory that day, and the people returned after him only for the spoil. What it says is no matter when he was left alone, people were frightened, people left, his hand cleaved to the sword. He held on, not giving up because this is a sword that can attack the enemy. Your sword is the word of God and your sword is the hope that you hold on to and you will find even though you are just one alone, you will find. And the Bible particularly says in verse 9, and the Lord wrought a great victory to that people and there were spoils. Thank God for Eliezer. Thank God for the Eliezer of today. No matter how much things you have gone through, how much things you have endured, you have stood and you never let go of faith and hope and love. And God is going to give you victory. And the nation brought a victory by God because of this one man. I want you to realize how important it is, particularly when you think about how important these words are, particularly as we partake in this communion, just to read from the book of Corinthians, and you can find in chapter 15, verse 1 to 3, Moreover, brethren, I declare unto you the gospel which I preached unto you, which also you received, by which also you are saved, if you keep in memory what I preached unto you, unless you have believed in vain. For I delivered unto you, first of all, that which also I received, how that Jesus Christ died for us in according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day according to the Scriptures. Oh, never let go of this, what the Lord Jesus Christ has done. And chapter 11 and verse 26 tells us, For as often as we eat this bread and drink this cup, you do show forth, or you do publicly proclaim, 
the Lord's death till he comes. We're not only looking back to what took place, but we are experiencing his death, burial, and resurrection in our body, and we also look expectantly to the day when he will come back. That is a great hope, isn't it? So H, not only for hope, but I want to say, oh, keep your eyes open, because no matter what you go through, you must realize far beyond what you see in the natural is the spiritual eyes that God has given, spiritual eyes to give you spiritual perception. Luke chapter 24 reminds us of two disciples on their way to Emos, running away from Jerusalem because of the sad plight. They thought Jesus, their leader, is dead. And they were like cowards, um, dogs putting their tail between their feet and running out of town until they were accosted by one man who began to expound the scriptures and then the even was come he sat down to eat meat with them and then the bible says in luke chapter 24 verse 31 he broke bread and their eyes were opened and wow they said didn't his words burn within our heart. I pray as you partake of this communion, your spiritual eyes may be opened to see the blessings of all that Christ, the riches and glory that Christ has won for us through his death, his burial, and his resurrection. I want to remind you, my friends, Psalm 119, verse 18 says, Open mine eyes that I may behold wondrous things out of your word. Let me see those wonders of everything what Jesus did. You remember the story, a beautiful illustration in 2 Kings chapter 6 and verse 17. When this man's servant who could see nothing but enemies round about him, when Elisha prayed for him, his eyes were open, and instead of seeing the Syrian soldiers, he was able to see the mountains full of horses and chariots of angels round about Elisha. There are more that are with you than those that are against you. There are more that are for you than those that stand against you. Open your spiritual eyes. What a blessing it is. That's why one of Paul's prayer to the church in Ephesians, in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 18, that your eyes may be open, that you may know what is the length and breadth and the glory of the inheritance of his saints is. H-O-P. And I want you to understand the P. Thank God, Yahweh, our Father, for the greatest gift of Yeshua, his son, the greatest gift of the deliverer, of the Messiah, Jesus Christ, our Lord, our Savior. And when we're reminded, that is the presence of God. Remember, Moses' great desire was that he could be very close to God. So when you turn to Exodus chapter 25 and verse 22, here is God saying, and there I will meet with you and I will commune with you from about the mercy seat on between the two cherubims. And as we partake of this bread, I want you to know this. In a sovereign, unique way, the Lord is going to meet with us and to commune with us. Do you believe that God communes, communes with us? Yes, the entrance to the presence of the Father. No man had seen God, and yet the entrance to the very presence of the Almighty God is on the basis of the shed blood of Jesus Christ. 
What a great privilege, what a great and mighty privilege it is that we come together as we celebrate the breaking of bread and drinking of this cup. When I think about the presence of God, remember this, David's, even David and Moses had such desire as the apostle, but there's a passage in Exodus chapter 33 and verse 14 where God says to Moses, my presence will go with you even unto the very end and give you rest. This is important. His presence is so very, very important. There's something I want you to remind you that when you think about the mystery that God has opened for us. Colossians chapter 1 and verse 27 simply says, it is simply this, Christ in you. Can you say Christ in me? The hope of glory. What we do is imbibe in a physical way as we eat of this bread and drink of this cup. Literally, we do have the very presence of Jesus, the one who is in our midst. The Shekinah glory was in the tabernacle, but today the tabernacle or the temple is not made with hands. It is each one of us, the temple of the Holy Spirit, and the presence of God is in you. And never feel that you're abandoned, never feel you're not loved. God has never left you. God is with you. God is around you, and God is is in you and God is working through you in Jesus name give the Lord a clap offering <laughs> H-O-P he and the word E simply is something very important no matter where we are God has called us to engage not leave not run off not cop out you know in Luke chapter 19 and I believe verse 10 most likely, uh, uh, there's this passage where the, the, uh, Jesus said, occupy till I come. He's giving the uh, uh, 13, I believe. He called the servants and delivered them 10 pounds and said, occupy till I come. Until Jesus comes, it's not just running away, but no matter what you're doing, do what you do and do it successfully. Do it with an excellent spirit. Do it that you would be blessed and do it that you would be blessed to be a blessing to others. Even in these difficult and challenging of times, occupy or be occupied till he comes. Occupy not only in terms of your profession, occupy in terms of your ministry, occupy in terms of your calling. No matter how difficult these times are, don't give up praying, don't give up reaching out, don't uh, give up reaching and telling others about God's love. Don't forget to reach out and pray for people that they would be healed. All this to say, no matter in what capacity, occupy till he comes. You see, in, Gen in Matthew chapter 28 and verse 20, this is the last final words of the resurrected Savior. He says, I am with you even unto the ends of the earth. Not only the fact engage, but the fact is expectantly. I like the way 1 John chapter 3, John is writing this beautiful gospel and in John chapter 3, verses 1 to 3, I want you to listen to what he says here. Behold, what manner of love the Father had bestowed upon us. As we partake of this, remember, it is Yahweh, our Father's love. Remember the love that he has bestowed upon us, that we should be called 
and you are not cursed. You are blessed and you are called sons and daughters of God. It says, therefore, the world knoweth us not because it knew him not. But it says, beloved, now are we the sons of God and it not and it doth not yet appear what we shall be, but that when he shall appear, we shall be like him as he is. When he comes, I want you to know, it's a twinkle of an eye, this body will be changed. Mortality will put on immortality, and corruption will turn in, uh, into incorruption, and we shall be changed into the likeness of his glory and the body at pristine as we were created in the Garden of Eden. The trumpet of the Lord shall sound, and time will be no more, and our time that we know in earth will be merged into eternity and we shall forever be with God that we will see for ourselves with our own eyes because of what Jesus Christ did for us. What a glory, what a hope, what a blessed hope. Can you say amen and amen? You know, when you look at the last chapter of the book of Revelation, in fact, the words that uh, Jesus says is amazing in verse 20. He that testified these things said, Surely I come, amen. And John the Beloved writes a postscript, and what does he say? Even so, come, Lord Jesus, in verse 20. Let me read that. He that testified in verse 20. He that testified... These things said, surely I come, amen. Can you say this together with John the Beloved? Even so, come, Lord Jesus. The greatest event that is to take place is not coronavirus coming back. It can come and go, but the greatest event of all is when Jesus, our Lord, our Savior, will come back again. We looked expectantly with this hope. Everyone that has this hope purifies himself. So, as we go into the table of the Lord, let me remind you something very important. Until the fifth Middle Ages, during the Reformation, good men, because of the excesses of the old Catholic Church and idolatry and the whole form, made a mistake of throwing the baby with the soap water. One of the things that we unfortunately did, particularly during the time of Zwingli, was we took away what would be the focus of the church on communion and put the pulpit so much so the Protestants are known for excellent preaching. It's called being great pulpiteers. And so a lot of churches are regaled by pulpiteers. That was not the focus for the first 1,500 years from the beginning of the church, what was the focus of the church? Let me remind you, this was. Every time saints, whether symbol or whether in elaborate great cathedral, when they came together, this was a very important focus. They literally took this, which you hold in your hand, and I want you to stand this moment, and hold it high, and say, this is the body and the blood of Jesus. I don't say literally, but this symbolizes something very important. And every time we partake, let me remind you, 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 16 says, the cup of blessing which we bless. What do you mean the cup of blessing? 
every time we partake of this communion, we're going back by faith to the day when Jesus Christ died, when our sins were nailed, when our weaknesses were nailed to that cross, when the curses were nailed to the cross, all the condemnation were nailed to the cross, and in its place, what an exchange. God's grace, God's mercy, God's riches in Christ Jesus, healing of the mind, the soul, and the body. Isaiah chapter 53, verse 5, not only for our sins and iniquity, and not only for all our unrighteousness, but also wholeness that we derive. Every time we go back to the cross, not simply in memory, but in present, partaking of what implies the past, the present, and also publicly showing till he comes. Therefore, as often as you eat this bread, as often as you drink this cup, you are publicly proclaiming or showing. Let people see, show forth what you have in your hand. This is what Jesus Christ did. We are celebrating. And in commemoration of what Jesus did, the greatest red-letter day in our life, greater than anything that is not our achievement, is achievement to save us. Our salvation is because of the blood of Jesus. Our standing with God is because of what Jesus did. So we celebrate this. So as we partake of this, I want you to say a prayer of blessing. Won't you confess a blessing, no matter what your situation is? Maybe you're hoping things would be better. Don't give up that hope. Maybe you're hoping your job, a better job would come back. Don't give up hoping. Maybe you're hoping there would be family together again. Don't give up that hope. But more than anything else, the greatest hope is the greatest, is let me be ready like the wise five virgins waiting and watching for the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Every time we partake of this, he that had this hope purifies himself. So shall we take this. Father, bless this which we're about to partake. And we give you thanks. We lift up this bread and we're grateful to you. We make our boast in the champion of champion who defeated Satan and gave us eternal life. And you're working within and out. You're working in our lives, in our situation, in our circumstances. Thank you, O King of Kings and Lord of Lords, as we partake of this Abba Father, you loved us so much. You gave the very best. And we partake of this communion, giving you thanks in Jesus' name. Let us eat together and drink of this cup.